0: Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I'm so happy to welcome Denis Moll as my guest. Denis is the managing director of Enso Earth, a life-focused organization on the intersection of living futures, biomimicry, circularity, and ecological design thinking. Okay, we're something like 50 episodes in, so I'm pretty sure that you start to grasp the concept of sustainability. But what if I told you that today will go beyond sustainable towards regenerative solutions? Well, in a second, Denise will reveal the three compounds of biomimicry, what biomimicry is all about, and then take us down that path towards net positive water. She'll then disappoint us by revealing how we, humans, are much less clever than we think we are, and how we might be well inspired to copy 3.8 million Euros of R&D instead of arrogantly trying to create something new. In our conversation, she'll share how becoming an engineer as a woman is still not as much of a common path than being a teacher, a lawyer or a nurse, how most of the pollution can be traced back to humans pouring chemistry into nature, how there is no such thing as waste in nature, but only valuable building blocks and natural resources, how we are kind of stupidly using drinking water for water applications that don't require at all such a level of purity, how it is our collective responsibility to sort the mess we've created, but also day zero transposing the International Space Station's water management to Earth, biophilic-environmental connection, the power of plants, all being organs of a bigger body, working on reality, and much more. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And if it's the case, please share that episode with two of your friends, grab their phones and subscribe them to the podcast. But really, do it. I'm still waiting, not moving, because I see you. Well, still not done? (laughs) Okay, you can also share it on LinkedIn if you prefer. Now really do it and I'll meet you on the other side.
1: For more information, visit gfps.com.
0: Hi Denise, welcome to the show. Hi, Antoine. I'm very glad to have you. We've been discussing that for a while now. We will be touching a very fascinating subject in just a minute. But right before we start, can you send me a postcard? Can you just tell me where you are and what I should know about the place where you're at? Okay, so
2: technically I'm in the center of South Africa based in Bloemfontein right now which is in the free state. I've landed yeah, because my mom got ill and she was visiting my brother who lived in Bloemfontein so I had to come up and relocate quickly. And yeah, I'm quite mobile and can travel. I'd love to be doing international travel rather, but it's proving to be quite interesting actually.
0: We are gonna be talking about water today quite a lot and I'd like to understand how you got first interested into that, that, that field of water. What, what brought you to that topic?
2: I think we have to kind of start with how I ended up in engineering. I think that's really where it starts because it's not really something most people end up in. And being in the industry for 35 years now, that means I went into the industry way back in the mid-80s. So, yeah, I ended up in engineering by mistake. (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) So, So what happened was I was in high school, final year, and the company approached the school for a drafting position. They were looking for young girls to train in drafting. And I've been, like, figuring out I want to be an architect. And I've never even, like, thought about the reality that drafting isn't just architecture. So no Google, no background research. So the sad part of that story is that in high school, we were never, ever offered the opportunity to live in engineering. It was like you had to become a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, I literally stumbled into it, but they offered me the job and that's my baptism into engineering. I started duck to water, ended up in water resources, amazing stuff. And within six months they offered to boost me to go and study. And that was my journey into engineering. So (laughs) cut (laughs) a long story short, I think we're all connected to water subconsciously or consciously. It is part of what we are. Looking back through my career now, I don't know how it was ever going to be anything else, you know, but it, it has evolved. I was apparently the first woman in a company to ever be burst for engineering. I mean, it didn't even hit my radar, but this was like exceptionally abnormal. And I couldn't figure out why they made me jump through all these hoops. like two days of psychometric testing, lots of questions about what is my long-term plan? What happens if I become a mother? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Hey, I'm not even thinking about that, I just want the job and I just want to go study
0: and this looks really interesting. You you just cracked a a major spoiler about (laughs) the next step (laughs) of our discussions. Um, But right before jumping into this way that nature can itself solve the water issue and and how nature can treat water, what I would be interesting to understand in your path is how you switch from being on the traditional side of the water sector, this engineering path and all, all, all these elements to a non-governmental organization with ENSO Earth today. So how does that happen?
2: I've always followed my gut instinct. And that's how I to you earlier on. I think it was my destiny to be led here. And there's been a lot of small incremental steps that kind of bring you to where you are. And then when, then when you look back through your life, that you join all the dots, you know, the pivotal point came in about 2008. I've moved to the Western Cape from Johannesburg, and I was trying to figure out life. I was on this path of trying to understand sustainability and. The Cambridge Institute of Sustainability actually brought out Janine Benyus to Cape Town to present live. And if anybody in this industry understands biomimicry, she's got the grandmother of biomimicry. She coined the phrase, she defined the principles. To be able to see Janine Benyus live was an opportunity that far exceeded my comprehension back then because she was relatively new. I remember walking out of that presentation going, how did we get this so wrong? It was mind-blowing when you finally realize that all the answers are there. We already know what we need to know. We just need to unlock it. That was the pivotal point because it was coming out of that presentation that I, I pivoted my company from doing industrial and mining projects. That was about 2010. And started to like pivot towards greener projects. So I was looking at green alternative energy projects. So I was doing like a wind farm and an ethanol plant and an LPG plant. And then about 2012, I heard about this thing called social entrepreneurship. And I'm going, ah, oh, that sounds interesting. So basically, that is how can you do good and make money? Well, I could do that. It's <laughs> really the focus then. Was how do I promote biomimicry within South Africa? It evolved into creating the Biomimicry for Africa um, Foundation in 2018 with some fellow colleagues. And I'm also realizing that there was a whole lot more to this than than just biomimicry. I was battling to make that hard connection between biomimicry and infrastructure design because nobody had joined these dots. So I found myself in teaching or or promoting biomimicry, but still not being able to connect it back to the engineering industry, which is where I really felt it needed to happen. And it became more about why I originally wanted to start the foundation, which was all about how do I ensure that my great-grandchildren will have a planet to live on? So it kind of goes back to the original 2009 meeting where I found Janine Denyus, the fact that we could go beyond sustainable to regenerative design. And the reason we want to do that is because we need to ensure our longevity as humanity on this planet. And I think that's when the penny first drops. That if we don't fix this, there is no future generation. This Mm -hmm. is it. We find ourselves where we find ourselves. And when things present themselves, You have the choice to grab onto it or just ignore it. And this was the situation. I found myself at a position in my career where I didn't like what I was doing to the planet. I realized the impact of those actions and I was really basically finding the life sentence or the death sentence of my future offspring if I didn't do something to change it. And that was the formation of the foundation.
0: Before zeroing down on the net positive water, You've used a lot the the term biomimicry, which we've heard already on that microphone a bit when I was discussing with Michael Stanley Gallisdorfer. But let's define it for everyone to grasp what the concept is. What would be your take at the definition of biomimicry?
2: Basically, nature has spent 3.8 billion years doing the R&D that is required to produce life. All we have to do is learn from nature. So we spend all of our energy teaching people about nature instead of learning from nature. And then the, 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 the next level is what does nature teach us? And there's basically three levels to it that we can learn from nature. So we can learn to imitate nature's form. So that's your shape and your, your structural side of nature. Or we can learn her recipes, which is your processes. So this is the chemistry of nature. Or we can mimic her systems, which is really the systems within the systems or the processes within the systems. But the most powerful designs are the ones that incorporate all three levels. So where you design... In the context of biomimicry, you're looking at nature's forms, you're looking at nature's recipes, you're looking at nature's systems, and you're weaving that into the solution. That, in a nutshell, is biomimicry. And basically, it's the perfect gateway into this realm of regenerative design or systems thinking and design thinking.
0: I love that concept. Actually, it is your tagline on the website, this ecological design thinking. It's just incredible. If I get it right... When you do this empathy first phase of design thinking, usually you go to your users and you watch them evolve and you look at what they do and you try to understand the challenge and then come with solutions. And if I get you right here, it's you go to nature and you try to get from nature what's happening right there and what can we replicate. Is that a right encapsulation of your concept of this ecological design thinking? So
2: so that's exactly it. So what what you do when you're looking at applying biomimicry is basically... You look at the verb and you go, what are we trying to do? So in other words, we're trying to purify water. What would nature do to purify water? And, and the Biomedical Institute has got this amazing website called Ask Nature. But you basically just type in what you're trying to achieve and they have catalogued all the potential solutions that relate to what you're trying to do. So it's not even hard because someone's done all the donkey work you know, and the legwork to create the system and this platform that helps us design in alignment with what nature would do, living future, biomimicry, circular economy, donut economy—they're all fundamentally the same because they've all been based fundamentally on nature. So, it's nature solutions and and the realization that nature designs cyclically or circularly. So, there's a start, there's a birth, there's a growth, there's a maturation, there's a aging, and then there's a dying, and then there's a rebirth. That is the design of nature. And and the byproduct is always the starting point for new life. And that is also the essence of circularity and circular economy.
0: When it comes to water and, and wastewater treatment or remediation, whatever we call it, is it a silver bullet? Can you take like design by nature, copy what nature would do, and can we really solve for everything that we are putting into this water? Because some of it is, of course, I mean, there's nothing on this earth which has no link at all with water, but some of the compounds we are putting in there are really so heavily transformed that they are barely still natural. So biomimicry as itself, uh, can it solve for every kind of pollution we're putting into the water?
2: Let's just backtrack a bit here quickly. I wanted to find the water cycle, okay, because Mm -hmm. we both know that water is a finite resource. It's just because nature does this process or the system so well that it creates this illusion of infinity. But the reality is that there's no more water today on the planet than there was four billion years ago in in various forms, ice, evaporation, whatever. It's a finite resource. It's the illusion of infinity that nature creates. Fundamentally, we're all drinking recycled dinosaur pee, okay? (laughs) I love
0: that one. (laughs) There's no
2: way around it. Okay, So so exactly that. When you frame it in that context, when you think that all the water we consume, all the water that turns through the system, fundamentally the same water that was on the planet 4 billion years ago 3.8 billion years ago, the same water that the dinosaurs drank and peed, it's the same water. It's nature. That is doing what it does really, really well to create that illusion of infinity. It's just the same water going through the system time and time again. So what we need to be doing is replicating that. And and the problem with what we're doing in the modern systems is that we're giving nature fundamentally stuff that it doesn't recognize and identify. So the minute we put chemicals into the system that nature does not respond to or know what to do with, it fundamentally becomes waste. Mm -hmm. And our problem isn't so much how, well, it is how we process, okay? It's the fact that we're not processing the way nature can handle it. So so when you break it down, when you realize that most of the pollution is, is us giving nature chemistry she doesn't identify and therefore doesn't know what to do with, or we're giving it to her in volumes or quantities that she cannot manage or break down in the process or the time frame that she requires to do the process, okay? Or we're working against the natural processes and sabotaging her ingenious designs of purifying air and water by putting stuff into the system that disrupts it. So like, for example, deforestation in favor of monoculture agriculture, that disrupts the purification of the air, pushing water vapor back into the atmosphere, creating rays. And it's only when you start to truly understand the natural cycles that you can start to identify the system's design or the regenerative thinking, where you can start to identify where the interception points need to be to fix the system. Basically, when you look at the planet in the context of the planet, it's one very finely tuned ecosystem that operates as a whole. That ensures our ability as human beings to live on it. When we start to disrupt it, we create pollution, we create waste, we create contamination, mm-hmm. we create all of these byproducts, which are complete byproducts of man's inability fundamentally to design in accordance with nature.
0: So, what you in say is natural. that if we rush forward, because at one end of the cycle, we are disrupting something. That means that at the other end of the cycle, we have to solve for that something by being more intensive, heavier on vision. the treatments. And, and, and if you keep pushing on both ends, well, it's never ending. and At some point, it's going to be so heavily disrupted. That's
2: exactly what's happened. That is, that is our climate reality. We have pushed all the natural boundaries to the point of breaking. You know, and most of us, I think, I don't think we intentionally set out to do that, Antoine. I think we did it out of ignorance. You know, we thought we were clever, but we weren't that clever. You know, and we're now realizing that the answer is actually quite simple. We just have to go back to how nature does it and then build that, into what we're doing now. The irony in this is that we've been doing it intuitively for for a while already without realizing it. You know, like I said to you earlier on, alluding to it is robotic design mimicry. We're mimicking the way the body naturally moves. Mm -hmm. You know, incremental things. It's feedback loops in, in systems. It's leveraging the technology to create digital twins. At some level, it's trying to mimic and control nature. Even blockchain is at some base level biomimicry. There's there's so much technology that's coming forward that has now evolved out of people going to look at nature for the solutions. And that's what's actually aiding us to start correcting the problems. And and one of them in the chemical and water and wastewater treatment is the realization that we don't need chemicals to do it.
0: Let's take an example of that. Can you... Guide us through your living machine project so that we see how that works when it's applied in the real world.
2: The living machine was really just one small element of, I'd say, net positive water because it really just deals with wastewater treatment. So the living machine is using nature to purify water or wastewater. You've got your Anaerobic, your aerobic, and then like your your filtration and polishing. And those happen at different stages in in the system. So at the anaerobic level, you've got the biodigester, and yes, biomimicry again, the biodigester mimics the cow's stomach and has four Mm chambers for digestion. And really, the byproduct of that is the methane gas, which is then harvested for the cooking. But this again is also a gray area within the different categories or people's framing of the context, because in living future, we're not allowed to use gas in any form for cooking, okay? And then mm-hmm. we've got your aerobic process, which is the aquatic cells. And these are really a series of separate cells. that do different things. You know, one is for aeration and the other one's for filtration. And And you'll actually see the water quality improving as you take samples from the first cycle. And then we basically go into the constructed wetlands, which is really where the filtration and polishing happens. And that's large surface areas where a lot of the microbial um, activity takes place, the bacterial and this is the reality, is that there are always microbes and, and organisms that naturally feed on this. So like in the anaerobic process, there's a whole lot of microorganisms that literally feed on, I think it's nitrates and, and the phosphates and stuff like that to create what it needs to do for the next stage. You know, At the end of that, you end up with very purified water to the quality that can be naturally discharged into a river course or a water course according to the regulations and the bylaws and, and the requirements from government on water quality. so Or you can literally direct it into hydroponic farming, aquaponics, conventional farming. Mm-hmm. So so that's the reality of that. But in principle, it's really taking the natural life cycle of water from where it lands gets contaminated. And, and this is what we also disconnect from. We think we're the only people contaminating, you know, Look around you. There's lots of animals living here, and they are all pooing and weeing, and <laughs> we don't smell like a storage farm, do we? And I'm like, hey, no, we don't. <laughs> nature just does what it does, and nobody thinks about it. You know, but we we actually mess it up when we put water with the mix. Do you understand? So, so when you actually get into the way nature manages waste, it's she does separate the liquids and the solids. Even in our own body, the design is separating liquids from solids. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. But we went and did as engineers, I just throw the whole lot together and add water. We actually create our own problems. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is a colorful conversation. <laughs> <hey>? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm pretty sure nature doesn't call it a waste. It, it's just a part of the cycle. No. And, and we humans call it a waste. And if you call it a waste, and you have to treat it as a waste and you have to just sort it out. But if you don't consider it a waste, and if you say it's a resource like another, is that what leads you to the, this concept of, of net positive water?
2: That's exactly it. That's exactly it, Antoine. is the realization that... Waste does not exist in nature. Mm -hmm. There is no thing called waste in nature. Everything is a valuable building block, natural resource. That is part of, I'd say, net positive water. It's not the whole of net positive water because wastewater treatment is only a sector. Because what net positive water is trying to do is mimic the natural water cycle, it starts with rainwater harvesting it looks at stormwater management, it looks at wastewater management, and then it looks at it from an integration of the whole. In other words, how do they cross over and how do they influence each other? Because how we design is that when you go to council for submission, you will do your growth um, and stormwater submission together and mm-hmm. then you'll do your sewage and water submission together. But the, the truth is, that the two systems influence each other. Because when you're looking at how your rainwater harvesting diminishes your stormwater flow and redirects it into another system and then takes your wastewater and reclaims it to reduce your water demand, that's what we call the ecological water balance. When you look at it within the context of the whole, that's net positive water because now you're having to manage the entire cycle of water from rainwater or, or potable water, waste water, stormwater within the context of the site. The first fundamental is always in the context of place, okay? Because your soil type, your topography, your climate, all of these things will influence what your final net positive water balance will look like. You want to be able to keep this close to what the preconditions were to have the least environmental impact.
0: That, that's the part which I don't get because to me, the natural water cycle is fully neutral. You have water, as you said, which is still the same than we had millions of years ago and what the dinosaurs had and everything. So that, to me, is all neutral. So how
2: do you make it positive? (laughs) (laughs) How they define it in the industry, okay, is that basically net zero is the equal sign. So your water consumed is equal to your water reclaimed, which is 50%. 50%. Whereas the net positive is the greater than. In other words, your water recycled is greater than the water consumed. So anything greater than 50% is considered positive. And how it's defined is, for example, when you look at your water balance, your capita water consumption is only, say, 30%, and your wastewater reclamation is 60 or 70%. Then in principle, you've got net positive, according to the definition. But you're absolutely correct that because it's a finite element or or resource, technically you can never get positive because you can never create more, you can never reduce more, okay? It's really how they define the positive is about how much is reclaimed and what percentage of what is going in is actually reclaimed, recycled, reused, etc., etc. Like I can do an entire podcast on literally net positive water design because it's, it's, it's fascinating because that was the pivotal point in my career and it only happened like a few years ago <laughs> when I realized there's actually a different way to do this because we have been so indoctrinated and taught to follow design codes and never question this is how it works when you start to break it down and I don't know if it's different in Europe but this stuff works in Africa okay we basically get a 100% of our water from the municipality or the the city we pay for that the reality is that only 30 to 40% is true potable demand that is really for drinking and ablutions showering hand washing is true potable source cooking true potable source but as a part of it almost like 40, 50, 60% or non-potable use, depending on obviously what you design in the building for. So those, those numbers will vary, okay? But when you come down to think that we basically spend all this money to buy potable water to literally, in one toilet flush, send it down the toilet <laughs> and contaminate it instantly. And then we have to pay our municipalities to retreat that sewage and send it back to us. As potable water so we can repeat the cycle and it's insanity because we <laughs> haven't realized you know, I like the way that you're laughing because when you realize that you've realized it's positive water because that's the insanity of it and people don't even realize we're doing this double dipping cost because we're not looking at water fit for purpose why do we need potable water to flush a toilet
0: well I guess it, it comes back to what you said at the beginning It's we had the engineering and technical capability to do so so we did so i don't think it it was thought true i I don't think that someone ever i I hope so at least (laughs) that no one ever came up and said hey i need drinking water to flush my toilet it's it's just i mean that was the water available so let's use it but if you think of it as a system, it's different.
2: Then you go back into like, the engineering behind it, and you realize that the reason they did it is because they didn't want to double-plumb a system. We didn't have the technology. 200 years ago, when the Victorian came up with this ingenious idea of flushing toilets, the reality is that water was abundant. We didn't have the population growth we did. We just... It was readily available. You could harvest it at source, just flush it down, you know, and it, it went away. But nobody thought about the impact because we hadn't advanced or evolved enough in our thinking to realize the impact of what we are creating. And that's what I'm saying. I don't think we intentionally set out to, to, to make a mess. We just happened to make a mess. Now that we know we've made a mess, can we actually ignore it? Or do we not have an obligation to fix it? And I think that's really what it comes down to. And that's why I started a non-profit is because I thought I had an obligation as part of the problem to actually be part of the solution. We now have the technology. And if you think of it laterally, I always refer to the International Space Station. 20, years ago, we figured out how to put a man up in space at lengthy periods of time. There's no water tanker that's around. There's no sewage pipe that leaves. It's a closed-loop design. And that's when the penny dropped for me, when I realized that if this is how we could design our buildings. We don't need an infrastructure network, actually. It becomes redundant. It's now about making that affordable.
0: Exactly, yeah. Because the, yeah. the International Space Station can afford to run on a 98 percent recycle rate because there's just no other solution it costs so much to, to send a 100 liter cube of of water to the space so it's just not a question you recycle but as long as it's steel and I'm using a lot of brackets here easy to access to water on earth it's going to be difficult to make the economical point of of closing the loop. And of reusing more, which leads me to, to my question, actually. I fully get your explanation around why it makes a lot of sense and why it's stupid to, to deal with water the way we do. But what is the trigger we need for everyone to realize that we are going into the wall? If we keep doing it that way, how can we grasp water scarcity?
2: you need to grasp it. I think, you know, when, when you start looking at the global projections of when we're going to run out of water, you know, we, we alluded to the discussion about day zero in Cape Town. But, you know, it's, it's going to be day zero for many countries. It already is. You know, we've got severe drought in, in the California region. You know, there, there's the aerial sea that's run dry. And and it's all because we haven't managed it properly. Do you understand? That's the economics, I think, Antoine, is when Is the financial equation or the business case for the International Space Station the criteria that makes it important for us to achieve it? In other words, when does water become so expensive that the International Space Station solution is actually cheap and affordable? That's going to be the tipping point. Or the tipping point is when do we make the International Space Station solution so affordable that everybody can do it? And that's is what drives the technology. Do you understand? That is also why we need nonprofits almost to be pushing this boundary because this is where the innovation leads from. Because Absolutely. while nobody's challenging, the possibility or looking for a solution because it takes a lot of energy and money to prove the case studies, to develop the theories, et cetera, build the business cases, to get it to that point where early adoption happens and then it becomes the norm. So the more water stressed we become, the bigger the need will be to solve this problem. In South Africa, it's becoming a reality because – Our situation is that 90% of our wastewater treatment plants aren't functioning. They've been neglected. Maintenance hasn't been done. So the traditional system has failed. We're dumping raw sewage into our watercourses, and you think we haven't got a problem. And yet people are still not proactive in doing this. And that's a simple solution. We just have to buy a treatment system distributed through a network, problem solved. But because it's, it's so foreign, in our way of designing, instead of looking laterally and saying that there is an alternative solution that is actually far more energy efficient, it just does its own thing. It doesn't even need managing. And you know, we're just busy with a case study now—the business case of how you scale it up. Because we, as engineers, are very conservative. We don't like risk. We're chasing our tails. You know, we're not looking for for real solutions. We're looking at how do we avoid the problem.
0: The other element which I see in what you just said is that uh, when you talk about the the living building or the living community, it's also breaking the silo. Because if you look at only water, before it gets economical to recycle everything, it's not a matter of your great children. It's going to be a matter of of thousands of generations but if you look at the broader picture, and as you explained, in your an anaerobic step, you're producing some methane. You can be reusing that methane. And maybe there's some phosphorus, which is still in the water at the outlet. And if you do aquaponics or uh, hydroponics, you can use that phosphorus to just water your crops. And then your crops are going to deliver you a better yield. And, and that is just, I mean, an oversimplification of the stuff. There's just so many streams, but that goes with circularity, that goes with interconnection, and that goes a lot with distributed solutions and decentralized systems which are just living in their own community wherever they are and once you reach that point then the economical tipping point is is much closer because actually you just have to kick start it but then the the full circular flywheel is starting to roll and, and to work but that is counterintuitive as an engineer because you're, as you just explained it, when you're an engineer, especially a water engineer, you know, the, the water industry, you have no clue about the engineering sector. You have no clue about uh, the agricultural se- sector. And so you think just inside your silo. So it's about enlarging the picture and having a look at the, the whole system, which is probably the scale where nonprofits have a good position and where governments shall kick in because they are supposed to be the ones which can break those silos.
2: That's exactly it, um, Antoine. And that's why we're doing it, because we realize that to build the capacity we need to shift the industry into this line of thinking, you have to create the space that will nurture that level of thinking. And it is about a multidisciplinary team. So when I talk net positive water, Okay, you actually have to be a civil engineer. You have to be a mechanical engineer. You have to be a process engineer. You have to be an ecological engineer. And then thrown in there, you probably have to be a landscape architect or a landscape Okay, some kind of person who growth plants, and understand plants and which plants are best suited for what. Um, the philosophy of living building is how do we design a building to operate as a flower? So it harvests its own energy, it harvests its own water, it grows its own food. It does all the things, and it looks pretty. Okay, <laughs> so, <laughs> and it looks pretty. But but it's real stuff. You know, it's the biophilic side of it. What makes our environment? conducive to us being happy and you know like functioning and thriving. So those are the philosophies of design. And and this is what really frustrates me with this is that the architects latched onto it. Okay. And then you got the engineers and they just don't show up. You know, they just don't think this is relative. And yet it is so relative because it's part of so so when I okay let me explain to you the Positive sides of net positive water. If you could imagine a building, okay, and it's now harvesting its own water, it's retreating its wastewater, it's using that nutrient rich wastewater, in inverted commas, to grow its own food. It's pushing evaporation back into the atmosphere, it's recreating its own rain, it's functioning within its own footprint as a complete closed loop design. Is that not? The right economical situation, when you see the benefit, or instead of sending that wastewater to Helen, gone down the, the road or the hillside for somebody else to make a problem of it, we need to know how to harvest that and use it as a resource. But when you realize that by closing the loop on the wastewater system, you contain all the contamination the pharmaceutical byproducts, those drugs, those hormone tablets and all of that stuff that ends up ending up in our water courses It's just this closely design that, that allows the building to retain its, its contamination footprint. You get plants that will extract all of that stuff. When you actually seriously delve into the, say the nature side of it and, and what plants can do for us, it's mind-blowing. I mean, it's like hemp can can reduce radioactivity in soil. I mean, it's like the first time I heard about that, I was like, geez, we should be planting hemp everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> like, seriously, like, but that's the reality. There are plants that take up heavy metals, that actually fix the problem for us without us doing anything. But we will rather go and engineer a solution that takes a lot of energy and a lot of money to fix a problem that we've created, that nature could probably resolve for us with absolutely zero energy and effort.
0: If I want now to be the the devil's advocate for just a minute, what you're describing goes really against the way our societies are built, because we always go down that path of ultra-specialization, even to the point that today someone that would be a water engineer wouldn't define himself as a water engineer. He would say, hey, I'm specialized in a certain type of disinfection in the drinking water side. And if you come with something about wastewater, it's going to be a bit, yeah, you know, I, I don't know about it because I'm not specialized into that. And now you're saying that we should be at the same time doing a bit of landscaping, a bit of architectural works, a bit of this, a bit of that. So that taps into the other side of the coin, which is those centralized system, are maybe inefficient are maybe not the best solution, but at least you have the scale effect to have all the specialists needed at those places. And I tell you, it goes <laughs> against my own conviction. So I'm really playing here the devil's advocate role, but I tried in my own garden to to do a bit of aquaponics. And all I ended up with is that my fish were starving <laughs> and the crops n- never had any yield. It, it was it, just it terrible. Happens. At some point, you might come to the limit of the way we are designed as a society to deal with circularity. How do you overcome that?
2: What you're saying, Antoine, is correct at some level, but that's because our society has driven us into that direction. We used to be generalists. Do you understand? We never used to be specialists, but that's not how our society developed. We got pushed into having PhDs to be able to overanalyze this, Mm -hmm. and, and that makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, it's going to be the specialists who are going to drive Certain frontiers, if that makes sense. The secret to this isn't individual; it's community. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, if within your community you have people who can specialise, that like as a whole, you function as a unit. So, in other words, if you put the analogy back, say your body, there's lots of individual little cells in the body. Okay, but then a lot of little cells have a common function, and they become the liver, and then another little bit of cells have a common function, and they have become the heart. But as a whole, they all have an important role to play in the body, and that's I think what we have to transcend is that we have to stop seeing ourselves as little individual cells, but potentially as organs within the bigger body, and that system's design again. But as a whole, within the footprint of our community, all our needs are being met. When we start to see our city through that kind of lens, then it becomes infinite what what the potential is to change how we live and operate in cities.
0: What is your role as Enso Earth into this transformation almost that, that you, you, you'd you wish to see?
2: So we've understood why I created the non-profit. You know, it was about the longevity of humanity on this planet. From a more personal reason, I'd like to be able to know that my great-grandchildren can actually have a planet to live on. But my role is how do we ensure that future? The focal point was going back to what are the the basic essential needs for life, which was clean air, water, and food. And this is how we ended up back at water because the water drives it all. You know, the water is needed to create the food, it creates the vegetation that creates the clean air. So, just in that little loop, that is fundamentally what we focus on. So, we've identified that water um, is a pathway us obtaining our goal. And it's a critical pathway because what people don't understand is that you can't have one or the other. You have to have clean air, you've got to have clean water, and you've got to have food to live. If you don't have any one of those three, you're fundamentally dead. And then there's a scale to that. You need eight minutes of air, you need three days of water, and you need 40 days of food. And when you start to understand those numbers, then you understand how critical that balance actually is. So what is our role at ENFORCE is how do we look at that little cycle of clean air, water and food and ensure that because we don't pollute our water sources, how do we reduce our water usage in agriculture and farming? How do you upcycle wastewater to be a substitute for, I'd say, raw water in the agricultural process? And then... Understanding that all of that vegetation is actually part of the carbon sink footprint. It's what drives the clean air. It's what drives the water uh, vapor into the atmosphere. And it's actually quite interesting when you start to make that connection and that you realize that it's actually not the lack of water. It's breaking that cycle. So somewhere water became obsolete, not obsolete, but diminished, which drove the vegetation to not grow, which drove the cycle to not create water there, so that thing gro- drove the cycle to not produce rain. And when when you realize that, then you start to understand a lot of this revegetation programs that are happening globally, and how entire deserts have been brought back to life. But where we focused on is four key areas to to the nonprofit. It's mm-hmm. for advocating. How do we reach people and teach people what the cycle needs to look at? And then they thought, uh, I say, our education and training is how do we create apprentices who can train in net positive water? How do we help them develop the skill sets to be able to become the next generation of regenerative designers? And then basically they train on real projects that can create that impact. We're not training on fictitious stuff. And design is one of those things that's hands on. You have to do real design work to actually translate the theory. The critical link to all of that is the funding, because non-profit will unlock funding to do the projects, to create the training, to be able to shift the outcome.
0: How do you measure your, your success and, and what will make you look back in, in five years or in 10 years and say, we've achieved something which was even better than what we expected? <laughs>
2: one of those that have their own metrics um, or the KPIs. I think, you know, it's really coming down to how much water can we recycle. So, like with advocating, you know, how, how we look at our analytics, how many people can we reach, you know, education and training, how many apprenticeships, apprentices have we trained and graduated with Masters in Ecological Design, you know, mm-hmm. um, projects, you know, and on the projects alone, you know, you, you're just looking at how much water have we reduced, reused, reclaimed, recycled, you know, and even funding, you know, how much money have we raised to put into projects? Those are really the metrics that we're going to be chasing and monitoring. For,
0: for the part of your role where you're acting with this, this fundraising how do people react to your explanations? I'd call it a narrative, even, don't, don't get me wrong, it's not a story like the one I tell to my daughters, and, and that would be a fantasy. I mean, it's real life, but but it's sometimes a bit disconnected from the perception that people have from the real state there of of a water infrastructure, of our water systems. How, how do you... How do you do this? Yeah.
2: <laughs> how do we do this? We take the human element out of it. No, I'm joking. Um, so, so what we've done, is, if you're going to rely on people to donate money, it's never going to happen. Okay, that I've realized. I've been living my own social experiment. I'll tell you about that offline though. But it's, it's actually shocking. First of all, how disconnected people are and how apathetic people are at fixing or helping to fix the problem. That's why I've adopted this approach. I'm going to go find my own money, and there's lots of grant funding, and there's a lot of money out there, actually, but it's only really available to nonprofits. I'm then going to create my own projects that I can fund from my own money, or somebody else's money that I'm convinced them to give to me, to be able to demonstrate the reality of what is possible. And through that, I'm just going to train a lot of people to do more of this, because I'm never going to be able to do it on my own. And then in the background, we'll advocate people about what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. But if you're going to try and advocate them to donate to your cause, you're wasting your time. You're never going to get this off the ground. So, up until now, my entire nonprofit has been self funded from our project. So, we mm-hmm. just go out and do conventional engineering with a green twist to it. And basically, X amount of our profits go straight into funding the nonprofit. But with COVID, we realized the resilience <laughs> or the lack of. Sustainability in that because if there is no project, nobody's doing projects, and all our um, approval processes stalled in council because it was shut. Um, you know, we, we've we've had to look at different funding strategies. You know, and well, the grant funding and the corporate social responsibility or the CSI funding has always been there, and and in South Africa, it, it's mostly contextualised. The government has made tax benefits for it, so you know that's the big corporate giving the money. But yeah, well, I think when you are looking at Individuals. I mean, there is a funding strategy that leverages high volumes of low numbers to create the kind of turnover you need or the funding to generate enough money to do the impact. But if you don't rely on that, like I say, you're never going to get there. So we have like a multiple prong approach with funding, which is obviously self-funding from projects and then looking at government grants and, and stuff. And then we've actually just recently in the process of doing an online store to, to leverage you know, COVID and drop shipping, and basically all those products are water or biodegradable nature-based kind of solutions, and one is um, a product that's been developed in South Africa. You start to figure out how to get to the rest of the world, but it's an amazing product. It's it's really linked to the biotreatment system, and it's actually Green Tag certified, so all the Green Star buildings should be using it in their cleaning process, so Really, what we did was say, okay, we, which products or affiliates can we link with, that we can sell their products, promote their products to basically generate the revenue. We need to cover our operating costs.
0: I could have an additional 2,000 questions, but I'll, I'll try to encapsulate that in a in, in very last one in this deep dive. You mentioned COVID, which yes. has, of course, worldwide terrible consequences. But if we want now to take like, Pink glasses to look at it may also be an opportunity because we disrupted the world one way or the other. So we have the choice between going back to what we always did or to say maybe that's the opportunity to, to take a fresh start and to look at our infrastructure differently, to look at our investments as communities differently. Do you think that is an opportunity that you may be able to, to leverage? Do you see that opportunity at all? Or do you expect it to just come back to a 2019 vibe when all of that is over?
2: From a non-profit perspective, Antoine, I think there's a huge opportunity to leverage it. Because what has happened in the corporate world is this whole focus on CSG, I don't know if you've ever touched on ESG. It's actually very important. And what I'd like to see, there's still a disconnect between ESG and actual nonprofit benefit. But in the same way we saw the connection with CSR and CSI to nonprofits and being able to donate your profit margin to nonprofit, I'd like to see almost like CSR and that fall away and ESG get reframed into – the global scorecard. So, in other words, if you as a corporate are donating to a non it should influence your ESG score. If it's a non profit relative to environmental, social, or governance, there should be a, a leveraging on the scorecard. That's, I think, one of the areas where we can tip it. So, in other words, if all the organizations or corporates out there who manufacturing and doing stuff come to the table with the E, in the environmental part highlighted and they look at their processing facilities, they look at what they're doing to the environment, they look at their wastewater reclamation. I think there is a point to create the tipping point and there's been a lot of discussions around how we can leverage that to create that tipping point because I don't think the individual person in the street Yes, we can advocate and we can hold protests and stuff like that, but the doctors need to be big corporates because that's where the tipping point will sit. And the ESG scorecard needs to start reflecting the true impact that these companies are having on, at a planetary level, not just at an investment value. That's what I'd like to see change. And I think if we can fix that, it will ripple through that, then the nonprofits will get the money they need to do the work they need to do there is a tipping point, And I don't personally think we will ever go back to pre-COVID. It, it, this has changed humanity going forward. It has changed the trajectory of our path. And there's a lot of people out there trying to leverage it to the benefit of the whole. And I do truly hope that that would be our future.
0: Well, it's a fascinating transition that you, you offer me here because uh, I've been discussing ESG with Florian Hebb and, uh, Julian Cobble yeah. on that microphone and the ESG ratings were something which they really highlighted in their explanations to say that is probably a way to trigger a, a real impact, at least from the financial perspective. They explained that much better than, than, than me. So you <laughs> can have a look at that, that interview. As I said, I, I could be spending another 2,000 questions discussing that matter with you. But it, if it's fine with you, Dennis, I propose you to switch to uh, the rapid fire questions.
1: It's time for the rapid-fire questions.
0: So in that last section, I'll give you short questions and uh, you'll have to give me short answers. But don't worry, I'm always the one which is sidetracking the discussion.
2: You can cut, <laughs> cut the master. <off. laughs>
0: <laughs> so my first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why?
2: That would be the living building challenge. That was my realisation the 30 years of infrastructure that there's a whole different way to do it. And we are 180 degrees in the wrong direction. And then I think doing the legwork now into the living community challenge and realizing we can actually scale this (laughs) and make it affordable.
0: What's your favorite part of your current job?
2: Marketing. Telling the story, the why. Sharing the exciting new ways of designing, strategy, unpacking that pathway of how do we get to the objective. That's my job.
0: Love it. Well, that is a fascinating answer. I think never, never, never since I'm asking that question and you're my guest, something like guest number 50, I have never heard marketing coming out so spontaneously. <laughs> Even when I interviewed <laughs> Bjorn, he didn't mention marketing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's my job as CEO is to tell the vision, the story, the why. I mean, and I'm passionate about it. So I love sharing it.
0: I, I I can experience that right now.
2: <laughs> so. Oh.
0: What is the trend to watch out for in the water industry?
2: I think it's um, all around, probably the the likes of ecological engineering, green infrastructure coming forward, looking for the nature-based solutions. But I think another side of it is also aligning our materials with nature's chemistry, even in, I'd say, manufacturing of our pipe work, all of that stuff we need to rethink. But chemistry, we're putting into the industry. That's our problem.
0: What is the thing you care about the most when you're working on a new project and what is the one you care the least?
2: Oh, this is such an easy one. I love conceptual design. Getting the backbone of the project worked out, understanding that whole system design thing, and then giving it over to the rest of the bars and cross the T's. And my least favorite part of this job is haggling fees with clients and managing scope creep.
0: <laughs> Do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the water and wastewater market trends? I
2: think if the in India are doing really amazing work on like leading water sensitive design and decentralized systems and you know from an African perspective they're very relative because we say you know we're facing very similar challenges in Africa economic water scarcity. But um, yeah, I think the ones that I would say is don't discount them is like the Biomimicry Institute, the Living Future Institute. because they're the guys who are pushing the parameter with regard to you know they're running the design challenges, they're running the product challenges. They they're making us look. They are making us look for alternative solutions. And and like I said, to you, if you link it to what we need to be doing in the materials alignment to natural or, or nature's chemistry, that's where we have to start. You know, because until we fix that, we're always going to create waste.
0: And last question, would you have someone which would be nearly as passionate as you and that you would recommend me to invite on on that microphone?
2: So there is a company we're busy doing work with that we're currently evaluating, but they're actually a US-based company, but they're really doing some interesting stuff. It's called EcoSolve and they're working with magnetic water devices and that impact on agricultural water use and you know, how are we able to double our yield with half the amount of water due to the magnetization of water?
0: <laughs> well, thanks a lot for the advice. And, and to wrap that up, Dennis, it's been a, a pleasure. I have learned so much l- discussing with you. And uh, as I said, it's a pity that I have to put all of that into an episode. So I, uh, uh, I would say, <laughs> if you're free any time in the future, we can continue on that discussion. I would have oh, so much more questions
2: for you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'd love to I'd love to carry on because there's, there's so much to know. And I mean, I'm not a specialist, Antoine. I don't ever promote myself as an expert anything. I'm a generalist. So I'm probably an expert generalist because I know a lot about it, a little bit of everything. But it's it's important for what I do because that's how you link the silos. It's how you break down the silos. <laughs> I couldn't do this job if I was a specialist.
0: Well, thanks a lot. And then I'd say talk to you soon.
1: (laughs) Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.